Hello, this is Curtis Edwards, Vice President of Investor Relations at Hudson Investing. Are you ready to start building your multifamily portfolio? Kent and I are excited to announce our newest deal in Spartanburg, South Carolina. This 157-unit property offers a unique chance to acquire a B-class value-add property for just $120,000 per door. This is well below replacement costs. De-risking the deal even further is a favorable loan assumption with over six years remaining at 3.73% fixed. With 50 economic development projects underway and 70,000 jobs within a 20-minute drive, the South Carolina upstate region is primed for above-average job, population, and rent growth. Don't miss out on this exclusive deal. Find the link in the description notes to learn how you can invest. You know, the next big principle when it comes to asset protection is just the basic court's authority, which is a legal authority or practical authority. And it's a really big point that needs to be understood with LLCs and real estate investors. And so the reality is that a judge can and does do whatever a judge wants. You know, LLCs and LPs, they're going to be governed by the state statutes where they're created in. Welcome to Right Around Real Estate, the show about how to passively invest like a pro. On each episode, I interview real estate experts who give their top investing advice, strategies, and tools, and I break down their insights into practical steps to avoid the pitfalls and make better investments. I want to help you passively invest like a pro. This is Ritter on Real Estate, and I'm your host, Kent Ritter. Hello, fellow investors. Welcome to another episode of Ritter on Real Estate, where we focus on how to passively invest like a pro. I'm your host, Kent Ritter, and today we have Brian T. Bradley with us. And he's here to teach us about asset protection. And it's an extremely important topic to understand, especially as an investor, as you're going into different deals. You know, how do you protect all of these assets that you're accumulating and all these investments that you're making? So Brian's going to go through this with us today. He certainly has the pedigree to talk to us about asset protection. Brian is a leading educator and asset protection attorney for high-risk professionals, entrepreneurs, real estate investors, and high net worth families. And Brian's goal is to give you peace of mind knowing your assets are safe. Brian also acts as a chief knowledge officer for law firms, helping them maximize their value along with technology integration. And Brian was selected to the Lawyers of Distinction list three years in a row from 2018 to 2020. He's on the Super Lawyers Rising Star list from 2015. He was nominated to America's Top 100 High Stake Litigators list, nominated to 2017 Law Firm 500 Award, and he also writes and teaches on high-end asset protection. Brian has been featured on numerous investing, real estate, cash flow, finance, and coaching shows, now including Ritter on Real Estate. So thank you, Brian. Appreciate you being here today and very interested in this topic. This is near and dear to my heart as an investor, and I want to make sure that all of our listeners out there are doing the right things to make sure that they don't run into issues and they can hold on to all this good wealth that they're accumulating. So thanks for being here. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks, Ken, for having me on and putting the podcast together and you know, like you said, it really is a big topic, but it's necessary. And I hope that these key concepts and the roadmaps, you know, we talk about really help. And at the end of the day, you know, like I'm an investor also. It's not a matter of what you have. I always like that saying, it's what you keep. And that's what my job is, is to help you sleep better, better at night and keep more of what you got. Yeah, I, I think that peace of mind is essential, especially as you as you get more and more involved with investing, you get involved in more and more investments. So let's start from the top. Let's just set the stage for what is asset protection? 
asset protection isn't traditional estate planning. So it's modern estate planning or more strategic planning. And what we're doing is placing a legal barrier between your assets and your potential creditors. That's it. You know, it's just a barrier, like a safe for your gold or your guns and anything of value you're going to want to put behind that barrier so that it's not easily attached with a lien or reached or attacked with a lawsuit. Now, for people who grew up with the more old school mindset where lawsuits really never were an issue, you know, back about 40 years ago, you could essentially just have everything in your own personal name or in a family trust. You know, that was acceptable then, and you could get away with it about 30 or 40 years ago. But over the past 40 years, the litigation landscapes just completely changed. You know, things that didn't happen in the past or that weren't allowed to happen in the past, like contingency fee lawyers or law firm advertising, are completely commonplace now. And so asset protection is now your modern best bet and attempt to level the playing field by using all the different legal tools we have. And what this does is make it very hard for creditors to collect. And so at the end of the day, you, you really can't do a lot about getting people not to sue you because that's just the legal system. If someone's going to sue you, they're going to sue you. But what you can do and have some control over is about how collectible you are and what jurisdictions you set up your systems in. Very interesting. Sounds like part of it, you're, you're setting up a barrier. You're also, as you talked about, you know, contingency fee attorneys, things, you, you're trying to set it up right so that you don't seem enticing as someone to go after. Correct. You want to decrease that target on your back. And so the more you have, the more you get, the more visible you are, the bigger your target grows and grows and grows. So what your role is and job is, is to decrease that target and not be seen so much as a mark to where even if you are a working mark, whoever that attorney is going to research you, they're going to say, well, this is a big mark, but there's no assets that we can actually collect on. So we're a business. If we're going to spend $50,000 suing this person and we're going to spend that or more to collect on, that's not a good business structure. We're going to close our doors really fast. So we're going to move on to somebody else. Very interesting. Okay. So what are the different forms of asset protection? Yeah. So we can go over a roadmap, you know, and a lot of the principles come down to equity and cash flow and inside versus outside liability, as well as some legal practical authorities. And then we got these big guns called asset protection trusts. And so we'll just walk through this roadmap and kind of lay down the foundation and we'll just go from there. And so the goal is the same, no matter what stop on the road that you take, you know, essentially it's just to get the assets out of your personal name. And then each stop has different levels of strength to protect you from attacks based on your asset profile and your needs. And so the first big concept that comes to protecting real estate is that equity and cash flow are what really matters. You know, like it's not fair market value. You know, real estate almost always has debt attached with it. And what this means is that a building worth $3.5 million and, you know, there's $3.2 million of debt actually is going to have a less net value to that owner of a building that has, you know, $650,000 worth, but is paid off in full. And so it goes to the general saying of gross value is vanity, net is sanity, and cash is king. Why you care about this for asset protection is because if you have a judgment creditor looking to collect a judgment on you, they don't care about the gross value of their property. They only care about the net equity and the cash flow that's coming from that property. And so sometimes carrying debt as an asset protection barrier works for you because it's harder to collect on. Very interesting. So actually keeping a, a healthy amount of debt on your property is, is that first barrier that we talk about. Yeah, it could be a first barrier. And most people who are just starting out aren't paying in cash. So they're going to have a mortgage. So they're going to have 
are already a higher principle than a creditor suing them in an initial spot. And then I would always say, like, have insurance. There's no other limitations of it. That's going to be a next, the next entry-level barrier. And then there's going to be LLCs. That would be your next entry point. You know, like, everybody knows about LLCs. Everybody understands what they are. There's pros and cons to them. They're good as an entry point, and they're good to limit some of your personal liability they're good because they're easy to manage. They're cheap to start with. Eventually, it just becomes a mess. And like, like we were talking about before, you can't transfer jurisdictions with LLCs. And so if you're living in like California, for example, and you go by and create a Nevada LLC or Wyoming or Delaware LLC, whatever state LLC that's not in the state that you're at, where's that asset at? That asset is not in California. Wherever that injury comes from, that property, that asset, that's where the jurisdiction is of that lawsuit. Those are the state laws of torts and damage laws that are going to be used. They're not going to transfer Delaware tort and personal injury laws to California because you formed a California LL, I mean a Delaware LLC. And so that really goes into you know the next big principle when it comes to asset protection is just the basic court's authority, which is a legal authority or practical authority. And it's a really big point that needs to be understood with LLCs and real estate investors. And so the reality is that a judge can and does do whatever a judge wants. You know, LLCs and LPs, they're going to be governed by the state statutes where they're created in. What this means is that if you created a Nevada LLC and the exclusive remedy against that Nevada LLC or Delaware LLC is the charging order, a judge, even in, let's say, California, by statute may not issue a remedy beyond that charging order, but that's just in theory. That's not how things actually play out in courts. Everybody knows this. Everybody knows that theory and practicality don't mix. Practical authority is what we're actually working with. And this is the power of a judge to actually do whatever a judge wants. This is their power to make decisions. And they have a superpower called the court of equity, which means even if they, can, they don't like the remedy that's coming down that they see that's backed by case law statutes and codes, their job is to make equitable decisions. So they just want everybody to be happy, even if it's in contradiction to those established laws. And so a judge has very broad powers to reaching your assets, like seizing them, placing a lien on them for a closing, ordering sheriff sales, cleaning title, wage garnishments. And the problem is judges, even without the legal authority to do these things, they do them all the time by exercising their superpower, the court of equity. And that can be done in direct contradiction to all these established codes and case laws. So the solution to hinder a judge's practical authority over your assets is to create an asset protection system so that they can't circumvent the legal processes themselves. And it helps you protect your assets and settle and get to the negotiating table a little bit faster and into a stronger position than you were in before. And that's by having stronger asset protection systems and using asset protection trust. Gotcha. So, So we talk about some of the entry level, right? having healthy debt on your property insurance, LLCs. But I guess what's the next level of things as you really bring this together into an asset protection program? I mean, what, what does that look like as these things work together? Yeah. So as you get out of the entry level, like you just started investing and now you have, let's say like four or five units and you have a couple LLCs because you always want to split up the equity into different LLCs in case one asset goes boom, you can't stop an exploding asset. So you don't want it to drip into the equity of other assets. But it starts becoming a tax filing and CPA nightmare. So you want to start consolidating them into what's called a management company. So you create an asset management limited partnership. Those LLCs 
which own your real estate or your other assets are now owned by that management company. And so all the K-1s of those individual LLCs flow straight through that management company. So it's just one easy tax filing for your CPA. So they're not going to hate you. And then you can manage your bid, the business aspect of it through the management company. And then you're going to have those individual LLCs acting as holding companies in the management company. Then the next level off of that, once you're like, okay, I'm worth about a million dollars net worth, you know, there's value, there's equity. Maybe you're a doctor who also has malpractice, who's also investing in real estate, or you're just a successful real estate investor and, you know, have syndications you're doing is an asset protection trust. And so that's where really the meat and potatoes of asset protection and the true teeth really come into. But when you have asset protection trust, the big issue it comes down to jurisdiction. You know, like where do you set these up in? You can either create them domestically or you can create them offshore. And that's where the important decisions of these come into. And what is an asset protection trust? Just very simply kind of break that down for us. Yeah. You know, in his basic terms, uh, an asset protection trust is not a revocable living trust. So a trust is not a trust. And I think that's a big misconception that a lot of people have is like, oh, well, I have a revocable living trust. I'm good. And it's like, no, you're not. A revocable living trust is just to help you avoid probate, identify who your beneficiaries are when you die, who everything gets passed down to, and to hopefully avoid estate tax if you're one of those 0.01 percenters above the $25 million you know, death tax amount. But they have no asset protection to them whatsoever. Asset protection trusts are designed specifically to protect your assets. They're called self-settled spendthrift trusts, which means they're created by you, for you, as your own beneficiary. And they have um, a lot of strong statutory protections in them. And all asset protection trusts across the board are all these self-settled spendthrift trusts, even the offshore ones. And they're grantor trusts, which means that you, the person that created them, retain some of the power and benefits um, of them. You're not just signing it all the way. And, but the important part of asset protection trust, like I said, is what jurisdiction do you actually set these up in? And what jurisdiction means is that the laws and the rules that govern you and trust and business entities, they're going to be different from one jurisdiction to another. And this means from one state to another and one country from another. If you just think about, you know, like cop movies or TV shows, and there's a dead body that falls right in the middle of a county line or a state, you know, state line, and you have two arguing detectives, that's our jurisdiction, no, it's our jurisdiction. They're arguing about whose laws are going to apply in this. And that's the importance of jurisdiction. You have two options when you build this, when you set up asset protection trust, like I said, domestically here in the US, or you can set them up offshore. I personally prefer offshore and the power of going to the Cook Islands if and when the client needs it. And the reason is, is because they have what's called statutory non-recognitions. They don't recognize other states or countries, court orders or judgments. They're just going to say, thank you. We don't care where the Cook Islands, a lawsuit has to come through here. And there's so many statutory hurdles that have to go in place to get a lawsuit there that it makes it virtually impossible to be sued there. They'd have to prove their case by the murder standard beyond a reasonable doubt. The plaintiffs have to front all the court costs and they have to fly in a judge from New Zealand. You can't use contingency-based lawyers. Your U.S. attorneys can't follow you there and go with you there. If you lose, you pay. And so if I'm suing you and I have to prove a civil case beyond a reasonable doubt, most likely you're going to lose and then pay my attorney fees and my legal fees. And there's only a one-year statute of limitations. And so 
it's really, you know, five-star effective, you know, statutory non-recognition. But everything has pros and cons. The cons of purely offshore is it's expensive. You know, like it's not for everybody. The costs are going to be higher and the maintenance fees are going to be higher, generally around $5,000 to $10,000 a year. And then you have the domestic side, the purely domestic asset protection trust. They're great on costs, they're going to be a little bit cheaper, and the maintenance fees are going to be less. But their problem is they're going to fall short on effectiveness. And that's just because of our U.S. legal system. In the U.S. legal system, we have the U.S. Constitution, the full faith and credit clause. Like, you know, every state must give full faith and credit to the judicial proceedings and some orders of every other state, which means if I'm getting sued in one state, I can't go run to another state for their protection. Kind of what we were talking about with LLCs before. You know, you, it's just not the way the legal system works. And then we're also seeing a lot of case law come down. For example, California residents using out-of-state Nevada Asset Protection Trust. The courts are coming out saying, well, if you're not a resident of these states, and there's only 17 states that have this you know, self-settled spendthrift legislation, if you're not a resident of one of those states, it doesn't benefit you. You can't get the benefits of a state that you're not a resident of. And so they're piercing those trusts now and collecting on the assets in them. And this is just you know, from basic cases like Dale versus Dale, Tony One versus Wacker, In Ray Hubber, you know, all great facts, but the courts just said, hey, you're an out-of-state resident using an out, you know, a different state trust. Sorry, we're not recognizing them. And so you see this landscape of asset protection, and you can go offshore, you can go domestic, you don't know which route to pick. And you're like, well, I really like the combination of both. Why can't we just marry them both together? You can't. Actually, it's called a bridge trust. And so what the bridge trust is, is a hybrid and it's a foreign asset protection trust, but we maintain domestic compliance with the IRS and we stay in compliance with what USC section 7701. And that makes the IRS classify the Cook Island Trust domestically. And if you're ever sued, we drop the US compliance. Now it's purely a foreign asset protection trust and all the strength and power of the Cook Islands are automatically in your back pocket when you need it. And so the benefit of it is the cost is going to be cheaper, generally around $29,000 to set up that whole system. And the annual maintenance fees are going to be a lot less, like $2,100. Plus, you don't have to deal with all the foreign IRS compliance. So you don't have to have all the disclosures um, that you would for a foreign trust. You have anonymity by the St. Germain's Act. And if a rainy day and you're staring down the barrel of a really big lawsuit, all of a sudden, you can just automatically trigger the migration clause transfer the assets to the foreign um, jurisdiction of your trust, and you're going to be in a lot stronger position of strength. Gotcha. So those are some interesting advanced strategies. As I think you mentioned about a million dollar mark, but when does it make sense for folks really to, to look at these more advanced asset protection trusts? I would say for the bridge trust, I would say about, you'd be surprised, $500,000 net worth which means minus your liabilities. You know, like I think a lot of people, you know, will call in and say, oh, well, I have six properties, but they're all mortgaged. And so their net worth isn't actually where, where it calls wise. I and mean, this is unprotected, you know, net worth 500,000 or more. And the reason we go at 500,000 and we see a high number of clients coming in there is simply because it takes most people a really long time to make 500,000 to a million dollars worth of net worth. But one lawsuit can completely wipe that out. And they're not going to be able to recover from that. If you get above like 2.55 million, that punch to the gut may not knock you out and you're going to take a longer time to recover. But 
they can come back in and say, man, I really wish that we set this up beforehand and before we lost this, but you know, we're, we're slowly recovering over the years. That 500,000 to 1 million net worth mark, you're really at risk at that point in your life because you're visible, but you don't have enough money to back yourself if you ended up having a big lawsuit and a judgment against you. Gotcha. No, that's interesting. And why is it that, because I hear a lot of people talk, going back to LLCs, I hear a lot of people talk about LLCs, different strategies around LLCs. Why is an LLC strategy just not enough to protect you? I think it's great when you're beginning, like right at the beginning point when you're starting out. And generally we say rule of thumb, create the LLC where the assets act. So if you own a property in Texas, Texas LLC. If you own a property in California, California LLC. It works as a deterrent, you know, and the issue is the full faith and credit clause of the constitution. Like you just can't run from judgments and you have no protection from a judgment coming your way. LLCs are very easy to pierce. Any person just graduating out of law school will be able to make a piercing the corporate veil argument just based off of your accounting and how you manage the business. And most people aren't running those LLCs as a business. They're just using them as holding companies, which is then going to be argued as a shell anyways. And so the arguments that you use when it comes to just using LLCs as asset protections generally will pierce that veil, the corporate veil um, that you're looking for protection from very quick, which then opens up the floodgates to all the assets in it and your personal assets. And then the other misconception is, I think a lot of people think that, well, I'm a California resident with the California property and I created a Delaware LLC with the land trust and I put my property in that land trust, connected it to my LLC, but I'm being sued in California. So they think for some reason that Delaware tort laws are going to transfer over to California. It's like in a business world, sometimes that will happen if it's internal liability versus you and I own a business and we're suing each other or we have an internal lawsuit. Generally, those laws of the Delaware LLC are going to be what's governing that lawsuit because it's a business lawsuit. This is, these generally are going to be lawsuits with real estate, personal injury, tort damages, fraud, and things like that. Those are all going to be state-specific litigation cases. Gotcha. And I, I think that's a powerful point because I, I mean, I just, I just see a lot of people making those types of decisions, right? It's, I'm going to set up a Wyoming LLC or a Nevada LLC because it's going to provide me additional protection. And I think the point that you made about really the jurisdiction lies where the property is and where the, whatever the offense was happened, right? That's ultimately what's going to govern. Correct. It is. And all that that Delaware LLC or whatever LLC is going to do is just waste another motion that the plaintiff's attorney is going to have to file to pierce through it. And most of the time on your commission-based attorney, you have the money to do all of that because you're just going to be taking a percentage from the damages down the road. You've already done the cost analysis of the case. So following an extra motion to make a piercing the corporate veil argument isn't going to make me hesitate from suing you. And that's really what LLCs are. It's, it's an initial barrier as a smokescreen to try to jack up litigation costs for small claims to make them settle faster. But as you have more and you get into potentially bigger lawsuits and bigger claims, or let's say you're a developer and just like your whole project goes down the toilet, you're talking about multi-million dollar lawsuits. You know, like an LLC is not going to stop someone from suing you. You need a stronger form of protection that actually someone that will tell someone, 
hey, these guys have some an offshore trust. Even if we got a $10 million judgment on them, we're not going to get a penny out of it. So we have no choice but to come to the negotiating table. And then generally those cases settle for pennies on the dollar. Gotcha. So going back to, to the asset protection trust, yeah. what happens to your assets when you transfer them into the trust? I mean, do you, are you maintaining control? Talk about what happens you know, from a day-to-day management standpoint as, as those now sit in a trust. Yeah. So the assets get transferred into a limited partnership. And when you use them for asset protection, they're called an asset management limited partnership. You are the general partnership owner of that because limited partnerships have two separate classes of ownership, a general partner and a minority partner. The general partnership just holds and owns the assets. You're managing that share of it. The minority share of that limited partnership is the ownership of that management company. The Asset Protection Trust or the Bridge Trust is that entity. And so that Asset Protection Trust owns the management company. And then you're the beneficiary of that trust. And so you would just operate it as you normally would through your management company, you know, payables and receipts coming in and out of there through your bank account that you attach to there. The assets are going to be in tier one protection in the LLC and being held there. And then you have the next layer of protection, which is the management company. And that management company is going to be the face in doing your business. And then you have the ultimate cold weather. It's a really deep winter storm. It's cold. I got to go outside. So I'm putting on my outdoor weather layer jacket. And that's your asset protection trust. Gotcha. So you're essentially layering three levels of protection into this system. Exactly. And you should have insurance. So I would say there's a fourth layer too. You should always have insurance. Um, Just understand the limits and your claim limits of insurance and what actually happens in litigation. You like those lawsuits go through fraud. And then the way your insurance providers will go out of coverage is they're just going to say, we don't represent you for fraud or intentional wrongdoings. And even an email is simply as, you know, saying, Hey, the plumbing got done. And then a pipe burst will essentially a judge will say, well, that was an email. Emails are intentional acts. So we're deeming that statement intentional. That turns the entire lawsuit into an intentional act And that right there gives the insurance providers the wiggle room to separate themselves out from you and say, we're not covering you. And if you think we're wrong, sue us. Very interesting. So, so it is a certain level of protection, but, but as you said, a very clear distinction of if they can make the case that it was, how did you say it? An an intentional act? An intentional act or, or wrongdoing. And that's generally how like insurance is great for small damages. But when you're talking about larger lawsuits, their, their whole role is to separate and distance themselves from you and to wiggle out and create that separation. And at the end of the day, what people don't realize is insurance really is just a means to provide capital if you have to go to court. And sometimes insurance providers are going to say, okay, here's your lawyer. Now there's a conflict of interest. Their role is just to settle the case for the insurance provider, not your best interest. And then that capital that they provide gets eaten up in litigation. And then at the end of the day, you're still going to be left with a really big damage loss potentially. Gotcha. So it, it definitely plays a role, but it's not, not the end all be all uh, as any of these are, which. Yeah, I, you, I would not recommend you solely relying on insurance to cover you, especially in really big lawsuits. I think that's good advice. So there's a lot of people out there talking about asset protection. I, I've, I've heard multiple speakers. I've heard them say different things, you know, as we're going straight to the source here, what are some of the, the common misconceptions that, that you hear people, there are, maybe they come to you and say? Yeah. So we covered, we covered a couple of them already. Some people are like, I've been an investor for 30, 40 years and I've never been sued. Like, I'm good. Well, that's not a plan. That's just relying on lady luck. You know, like that's just like being at the roulette table or craps 
and say like, I'm just letting it ride. You know, I've been lucky this whole time. That's not a protection plan. That's just luck. So the next one is, you know, you get some people who think it's illegal. No, asset protection isn't illegal. And the courts have been very clear on this. They like preventative planning. You know, they want you to plan before you need it, before a lawsuit. If you come in afterwards, it gets to be a really thin line of what we can do. And we have to then cross and, you know, walk through that analysis through fraud and fraudulent transfers, you know, and a whole lot of another, another analysis that can be a whole nother show on that. But it's not illegal. And insurance is a base form of asset protection. So just realize that's been around. Trusts have been around since the Crusades. LLCs have been around forever. We're just using different legal tools that exist. And then how we use them and combine them just depends on the client's profile. Another big misconception for offshore trusts is that they're all scams. No, they're not. But scams do exist. So don't think that they don't exist. Scams exist everywhere. And people get concerned when they hear about, you know, for example, the Panama Papers or they watch movies or Netflix. Um, so just do your due diligence like anything else, but realize offshore trusts have been the global standard since the 80s when they were created. And there's a reason. And the case law of offshore asset protection trust is solid. Over 40 years of just great case law, which you can't say for LLCs and all the you know, piercings of LLCs. So just do your due diligence when you talk to an attorney, but you should be comfortable if you have a proper attorney drafting an offshore trust. They exist and they're used worldwide. Another great one is I'm using asset protection to avoid taxes. No. If that's your intent, don't do it. It's illegal. It's fraud. If you talk to an asset protection attorney and they start talking about hiding assets, run away from them. If they talk about how it's going to benefit better for their taxes, just hang up the phone and run away. Like if you were to call me and say, I want to set up an asset protection trust because I don't want to pay my taxes, I'm not going to retain you because it's illegal and I don't want to lose my license. So just realize it's all tax neutral. It has to be. But that doesn't mean you can't get secondary tax benefits because if you take something out of your name and you put it into a business entity, the IRS views you through different optics now, which means you're going to pay different taxes. And generally, it's going to be to your benefit. It just can't be the primary reason for the setup. Another one, which is really a good question and confusion that I get is, would crossing the bridge with the bridge trust be a fraudulent transfer? Because you have a domestic trust, then you're getting sued, and then it becomes a foreign asset protection trust. How's that not fraud? Like, logical question. And the reason it's not is because a conveyance happens when you change ownership of an asset. So at the point, if and when you ever would have to cross the bridge, and most of the clients never do, there's not a change in ownership because the bridge trust already owns the assets from its creation. So crossing the bridge doesn't qualify as a conveyance because all the conveyance was done within the first 30 days of creating the trust. If we have to, we just drop the IRS domestic compliance, which then purely classifies the trust as foreign. And then another really big misconception is, you know, can a foreign trustee take off with my money? And that's a really, you know, because you watch Panama papers and you see this stuff, you hear it. And it's a very good and understandable concern. And a properly drafted asset protection trust creates internal and external checks and balances. So it involves the trustee, you with the trust protector looking over the trustee, you, the client looking over the trust protector, and the bank of your choice having built-in delays and that client consent requirements before any transfer can ever even take place. And you actually have to sign off on it. And so the effect of that is it's virtually impossible to make any move 
in your trust and your assets without you directly knowing of it, consenting to it, and signing off on it. So there's not just the layers of protection. Within each layer of protection, there, there's additional nuances that, that have to be set up correctly to avoid, like you said, a, a, a situation where somebody could commit fraud, yeah. right? You have and I'll to- piggyback off of that. And that's where it's like, oh, I can do this myself. No, like you did a great job probably DIYing your investment career and your business. Don't DIY things that carry liability and legal implications, especially to this level, because you're just going to mess it up so bad and it won't have the effect that you wanted if you're ever challenged in court. And that's what you want. You're setting this up to where if it rained and poured on me and I'm in court, how is this actually going to work? Yeah, I think that's great advice. And you mentioned some fees, some costs, kind of kind of round numbers. I mean, what does it ultimately take if, if you're looking at the, these different levels for folks to set up the trust and, and then manage the trust? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So basic LLCs, asset protection-wise, you'd probably be looking anywhere from $1,000 to $1,500, depending on the firm and what they do. And that's a pretty good general cost that I find across the board. For it to be done right and to be done by a lawyer and to have all the you know I's dotted and T's crossed that most people forget about. Asset management company, you're looking at generally six thousand dollars, and then they'll transfer. You know, like and we'll, we would even transfer the LLCs into that for you. Most firms would. For the full package, you know, an asset protection trust, a bridge trust with an asset management company, you're like we charge twenty nine thousand dollars for that, and that's about we price ourselves like right in the middle. Just because we, you know, it's just our business practice. We'd rather have people have something that they can actually get the benefit of and not hurt their bank account. And so you'll see some people charge more, some people charge less. But the bridge trust with an asset management company, generally $29,000, that's the two combined. And then the LLCs just get transferred in. And some firms will throw in LLCs. If you have nothing, they'll include an LLC in that package for you. I gotcha. And just as a follow up to that, the, the asset management company, it's not, from what you said, sits in the middle there. Who's actually yeah. running the asset management company? You're the managing member of that. You're the managing member. Okay. Yeah. And then the, the trust is, is the minority? And the trust is the minority. And the gotcha. trust, that's the ownership of that. And the trust owns it. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Well, awesome. Well, Brian, so much awesome info. I think, I think you helped clear up some misconceptions from me as well, but really powerful stuff. Before we, before we end, there's a section at the end I like to do called Keys to Success. Just yeah. four, four simple questions I'd love to get your thoughts on. Putting yourself in a passive investor's shoes, somebody that, that, that's looking at a deal with a, with a syndicator or that's maybe from your perspective more of you know, somebody that, that has done a few investments like this now and has accumulated some wealth, what's the one question that they should be asking? Where's my liability coming from? Interesting. Interesting. And then what's the thing that you're most proud of? You know, I get to spend a lot of time with my kids. Like I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old. And so the way I, I was, you know, set up my practice now is, you know, I get to spend so much time with my two girls, you know, at this critical time in their age and taking them to dance class and gymnastics and soccer and the park. So I get to spend more time with my kids than I think most people do. That's awesome. And that was one of my main drivers to become an investor as well as that, that time freedom. I've got three small kids, so I'm right there with you. And what's a book that everyone should be reading? So <laughs> there's so many good ones, but I'm going to go with something because everyone's going to be like, oh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, or Richest Man in Battle, or any of those. But I'm going to say The Alchemist because it's kind of like those, but in your personal life and journey. 
And, you know, you're going to read a bunch of finance and investment books, but, you know, it's the whole package. And so, you know, have a good little personalized journey, which also ties into finance also, if you've never read the book. So you get a lot of good little principles out of there. That's good. I haven't heard of that one. I want to check it out. Yeah, it's actually like, I think one of the top four best-selling books ever. So Really? All yeah. right. Well, I'm pick it up on Amazon. And then lastly, what's your number one key to success? Don't be afraid to fail. You're going to fail. Just don't be afraid of it. Because, you know, otherwise, you're going to get stuck in analysis paralysis. Just look at failure as a growing opportunity. And the sooner you start failing, the sooner you're going to start learning, make adjustments, don't make the same mistake twice, and keep going. But just realize failure is inevitable. Just don't let it freeze you. Just learn from it and go on. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic advice. Brian, so last, how can folks get a hold of you if they want to learn more about what you're doing in, in asset protection? Yeah, they can jump on my website, www.btblegal.com. I have tons of educational videos and pamphlets and brochures there. Frequently asked questions. There's probably not a question that you can think of that we don't have on there. Just, you know, it's all education for me. The more people get educated, you know, the better. They can email me, Brian, B-R-I-A-N at btblegal.com. I used to do paid consultations, but I just do free consultations because I find most people are afraid to get the legal advice because they want to talk to more than one person and they don't want to pay an astronomical amount of you know, consultation charges. So they just become Google lawyers, which is all wrong, and make the wrong decisions. And so I'd rather just give you some free advice, let you think about what you want, or if you like what I have to say and you want to go price shop, you know, it's not my problem. We do that. I just would rather have you a good, solid evaluation and make an educated decision and not be afraid to talk to someone because of cost. Yeah, I appreciate you doing that because, I mean, it, it is a topic that's really complex, right? Like you said, there's a, there's a lot of different opinions out there. I mean, I've heard, like I said, numerous people say say many different things on the subject. So, appreciate you giving those, those free consultations to folks. And Yeah, and the advice, when you're looking at different people's advice, just realize it comes down to your current situation, your current investment strategy, but don't lose sight of what your long-term goal is because things are going to have to change and evolve as that grows. And so just realize that someone is only selling you a one-stop shop, you know, piece of advice. There's a reason that that's probably not a route I would want to go because it's your whole picture and then where you're going that has to be evaluated. Yeah, that's great. So as a takeaway for, for our listeners today, make sure that you guys are evaluating your position, evaluating the, the asset protection that you have in place, understanding where your liabilities are. And, and this is complicated stuff. So I think get good legal counsel around this. But at a bare minimum, we talked about you know, using debt as a strategy. We talked about making sure you have the proper insurance. We talked about LLCs as a starting point, but then ultimately moving on to that asset protection, the greater level of asset protection with the asset protection trust. So make sure that, that you're evaluating and, and educating yourselves on that. And with that, Brian, thank you so much today. Really valuable topic. And thanks for being on the show. No, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Ritter on Real Estate. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss out on the content that will make you a better investor. Also, visit KentRitter.com for articles, videos, and tools curated just for passive investors. Until next time, this is Kent Ritter with Ritter on Real Estate. Now go out and invest like a pro.